Hello, and welcome to the Thames and Hudson podcast. episode of the Thames and Hudson podcast, we're exploring the long, intricate and all too often hidden history of sex work. I'm Eliza Appley and I'm joined today by Dr. Kate Lister, a lecturer at Leeds Trinity University and author of Harlots, Whores and Hackabouts, a history of sex for sale. Like few other fields of historical research, the history of sex work is beleaguered by unreliable and absent documentation. The realities of sex workers, from medieval London to the Moulin Rouge, ancient Greece to Edo, Japan, are laden with myth, fantasy, stereotype and stigma. For the overwhelming majority of sex workers, there are simply no historical records. Others have their names inscribed, but their own voices and own perspectives obscured. Their story is represented by others, oscillating between moral outrage and erotic imagining. Kate's mission is to give long overdue recognition to the truths of sex work, shedding light on the real experiences and real people that are part of this long and wide-reaching history. So Kate, welcome. It's a real pleasure to meet and talk with you today. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me on. It's an absolute treat. Thank you. I learned so much from your book and I was so struck throughout by the real human sensitivity and the historical rigour that you bring to your research in contrast to the vast quantities of distorting documentation that troubles our history and our understanding of sex work. And I wanted to begin with a point of understanding, with a point of clarification what is sex work? Because it seems a term that's most readily associated with prostitution, Mm. but really covers a legion of different services and different experiences. I think that that question is, it's a great place to start. And I I think that that's the question that has plagued the entire history of people selling sex and continues to do it is, what is it? And, and that, that answer is often caught up in stereotypes and assumptions. And if I say to somebody, what is sex work? What is prostitution? Everyone has a ready answer. And if you push past that a little bit more, it starts to fall down. It starts. To, it, we suddenly realise that actually, well, we're not actually quite so sure what it is. Because if I said the word prostitute to you, most people's reaction to that be, would be a, a woman selling sex, cash in hand, maybe on the street. It's got narratives around addiction and disease maybe about it. It tends to not be good things. And in our heads, we go, that's what it is. And that is a part of sex work, but it's one part in a vastly complex experience. And what we do when we think that that stands in for everybody who sells sex is we're actually being very blinkered to the reality of it. It's much, much broader than that. What about people that are selling a sexual service, but it's not full penetration? What about people that talk on sex phone lines? What about strippers? What about BDSM providers? What if you have sex with someone to get a a job promotion? What if you have sex with somebody because you want a good pair of handbags? What if you have sex with somebody because they're loaded? What if you want to marry somebody because they're rich and that's your primary objective? That's all sex for sale, 
as well, but it's much more fluid and difficult to try and capture. But for the purposes of this, and trying to get a definition of it is actually really important and something the sex worker rights movement has been fighting for. It is exchange, monetary, uh, financial, etc., exchange in reward for a sexual service, which is pretty broad and it needs to be. And if we take that broad, that inclusive definition that you've just outlined, can we also date sex work historically? Can we say when sex work first began? I know there's a a quote from Kipling about sex work being the oldest profession. Is that true? It's interesting that Kipling said that, isn't it? The oldest profession. Um, It's not the oldest profession because... A profession by definition needs money. You need to be working for a job. And there's many cultures around the world and throughout history that didn't have money. So they didn't have jobs. The idea that you need a job is a Western result of capitalism. So there are many cultures that had no evidence of people selling sex because they didn't have jobs until um, white Westerners turned up to colonize everybody. Things like when the his name was Lauren Andrews, I think he was a missionary who went to educate the Hawaiians in the 19th century. And he had to invent new words to teach them about sexual shame because they weren't concepts that existed in that society at all. So he had to teach make up words to teach them about adultery and selling sex because it, it wasn't in that culture. So sex work is not the oldest profession because there's been many cultures without professions, but it's certainly one of the oldest forms of exchange and bartering, I think, because sex has got a value, hasn't it? So it's it's one of the oldest commodities, certainly. Uh, the oldest written records that we've got go right back to ancient Babylonia, and there's reference to sex works there. There's a, a an Assyrian list of laws called the Code of Hammurabi, and they've got laws there pertaining to what happens if a sex worker has a client's baby and inheritance rights. You mentioned that list of laws. So it seems that from the earliest records we have of sex work, there was also legislation around sex work. Was there, as far as you've seen in your research, also vilification, stigma? All throughout its history, it's been a very, very complex experience. There have been people that have been vilified for it, but then it's also been in some ways uh, aspirational and a good thing to be. It's also kind of difficult to pinpoint down different cultures' understanding of people that sold sex because we drag with it our own modern viewpoint. So a good example of, of what I'm talking about would be the evidence that's left to us from ancient Assyria and ancient Babylonia, which talks about women that sell sex. And it's actually part of their creation mythology, a sex worker in the Epic of Gilgamesh called Shamhat. And there's this huge debate around whether or not there was ever such a thing as what gets called sacred prostitution or temple prostitution, the idea that there were women or men in the temples that you could buy sex from and that that would be in service of the gods. And there's a whole huge academic debate that goes on around it. Did it exist? Didn't it exist? Is it just a myth? Isn't it? But it's. I'm always kind of interested in that. I think that what we're trying to understand is we keep looking at it through our modern eyes. We're looking at it through stigma and uh, stereotypes. And it's almost like we can't conceive of our understanding of prostitution as being sacred. But that doesn't mean that it wasn't understood that way in ancient cultures and civilizations. Ultimately, we're never going to properly know what it was thought of them because we're only left fragments, like literal fragments of tablets that we've got that we're trying to decipher. But we can say that in the foundational myths, 
there are sex workers. Shamhat is very powerful. She is the priestess of a goddess and she clearly has sex for remuneration. So that would suggest that this is a culture that views sex work very differently. But then having said that, there's plenty of sex workers in the Bible, isn't there? So I think that attitudes have shifted vastly and they change a lot. But I'm not sure that there's ever been a time when it hasn't been vilified in one way or another. And I think that a lot of that's to do with class. And today that continues. I think that if you're looking at the priestesses like Shamhat or the fabulously influential courtesans of ancient Greece and Rome, they're wealthy. They're very powerful. They have very wealthy clients and they're kind of kept mistresses, as it were. And they become almost aspirational cultural icons. But when you're talking about poor people, poor people or slaves even selling sex in the brothels, they weren't viewed the same way. So I think very much that this is caught up with class. And I think it's a vilification of poverty, really, more than more than anything else. I'm so glad you bring that up, because one of the things that really came through for me in your book is the ways in which the stigmatization of sex work is caught up with other structures of power and oppression be it class or homophobia or imperialism or, of course, sexism. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about that. So, yeah, it it is. It's always caught up with other narratives and other understandings of groups of people. And um, One of the questions that I get asked a lot as a sex historian is, is there ever a period in history that had got it right, where it was this kind of sexual utopia? Uh, the answer is no. No, there have been vastly different attitudes in some places. Like if you were gay in ancient Rome or ancient Greece or the Ottoman Empire, that would probably, that had a very, very different attitudes and that they do now, but they also had institutionalized paedophilia. So it's no matter what we're doing, we tend to get hung up on it. And someone who sells sex becomes a really visible expression of our own understandings of sex and what we think about it. And it will trigger in people a lot of their own fears and prejudices. And that's what gets projected onto the figure of the sex worker. And we all become spectacularly hypocritical. I mean, I'll give you an example of like uh, modern day hypocrisy. It's people moralise around sex where people say it's it's terrible and awful and blah, 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 blah. And the question is, well, yeah, but have you ever watched online pornography? Have you ever watched porn? Have you ever looked at a porn mag? Because if you have, then you've used the services of a sex worker. But we don't think about ourselves like that. We distance ourselves from it all the time. But those people are being paid to have sex to turn you on. Boom, you've used the services of a sex worker. But we distance ourselves from it. We put it in little boxes uh, where it's nothing to do with us. Isn't that terrible? And that's all throughout history, all throughout history, where people have had very different attitudes to sex. You know, so I often wonder is just is it really the sex that we object to? Or is it all this other stuff that we project onto the figure of the sex worker that we fear? Thinking about those really wealthy courtesans and mistresses that you mentioned, I'd love for you to share a couple of examples because through the book, it's clear that both in European courtly culture and in Edo, Japan, there were women that gained significant wealth and incredible political access as well. Yeah, There, there were. And I think as well, it's something that, that we need to kind of, again, try not to view it through our own modern eyes, although there are certainly parallels, which is that you have to remember that these are societies that are deeply, deeply patriarchal in the East and in the West as well. And the role of women is so restricted. It's so restricted. You are going to be, especially somewhere like Edo, Japan, where it's going to be, you're going to be a dutiful daughter, then you're going to be a wife to have babies, and then your sons are going to look at you and that is you done. 
and you are going to be quiet and you're going to be pretty and just that's it, right? So then the sex worker kind of arises or the professional mistress becomes this space that women can occupy where they are effectively liberated from that. And I say this in the full knowledge that there is a lot of sex work that's exploitative and the experience of the fabulously wealthy courtesan is, is not the experience of everybody. However, it offered freedom and a route, first of all, a route out of poverty. I can't think of many other career paths that were open to women that would get you out of absolute and abject poverty. And if you're looking at something like like Edu Japan, not only was that the case, but it was so much the case that parents would happily sell their children to the brothels, which sounds crazy to our modern ears. Oh my God, it's awful, it's terrible. But they would get an education, a really good education. They would get amazing clothes. They would get the kind of life that you could never, ever, ever be offered living in dire poverty. And I think that the role of the mistress genuinely offered women, poor women, a way out of poverty, a way into education, and a way for political power. And I think as well, because it's a space that was already a bit naughty, you know, a bit, well, hey, you're not the wife, the wife, you are the mistress. That came with a certain amount of freedom to be sexual and to be admired and to be powerful. And there were many, many powerful mistresses all all around the world, so powerful that they were often referred to as the power behind the throne. You know, Cortes was like the, the iconic Nell Gwynne. Nell Gwynne, who was mistress to Charles II in Restoration Britain. She was born, they think, in a brothel, but she was born in London in dire poverty. And she got a job as an orange seller in a theatre. And then she got a role on the stage. And the conflation between actresses and sex workers is so fine in this particular period. I suppose because you're already seen, aren't you? You're seen in you in a public space. And then she becomes a professional mistress. And she has many lovers. And eventually she lands Charles II. And she went from absolutely nothing at all, dire squalid poverty, to one of the most powerful women in the country with the king's ear and other organs slightly south of that. <laughs> but it's like, what, what other... What could she have done to have gained that much power? I know that like when we listen to it, it's like, oh my God, you're making it sound aspirational. And But looking at that particular culture, those were the options available to you. How do you get wealth and power and independence if you're a woman? There's not that many roles open to you at all. And with that kind of role, that sort of institution of the royal mistress, are we talking about cash in hand or, or rather payment in kind in terms of yeah, very lavish lifestyle, beautiful clothes, a palace, and this political access? Um, I think that it's kind of all of the above. You know, it's um, the, the role of the royal mistress, the professional mistress, was actually a proper role at court. It wasn't like, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, or I think Charlie Boy's having an affair. It was an actual official role for the, for the mistress. And she has a house and she has influence. So it's an actual job description. And you would get a, a, a salary, You'd get a stipend, you'd get clothes, you'd get an allowance, you'd get a lot, you know. So it it is still sex for money. It's sex for a lot of money. It's sex for a lot of money and jewellery and houses, but it's still sex for money. That's what, that's what the job was. You spoke earlier about this hypocrisy, and that is something that really comes through in the book as well, this total double standard, while, you know, all these courtesans and mistresses are floating around royal palaces and kings are enjoying their various services. At the same time, those upper echelons of society are imposing really punitive regulations on 
the lower classes of sex work. And I wondered if we could talk a little bit more about some of the strategies that were deployed. Um, you're at pains to point out that none of them have ever worked, but maybe we could discuss some of the, the more shocking strategies that have been deployed to try and regulate sex work. The level of hypocrisy and cognitive dissonance is quite shocking. For example, it was Henry VIII who abolished the brothels in London, in Southwark, the system of what was effectively state-controlled brothel ownership. He abolished that. Henry VIII, Henry VIII, who cut his wife's head off so he could shag somebody else, is wading in on sexual morality. It still makes me angry. It's hundreds of years later. I'm not over this at all. It has almost been a cycle that runs throughout history, and we go through phases of severe punitive restrictions, which I'll talk about in a minute, then a kind of uneasy acceptance where people kind of go, all right, we'll just do it quietly. Then there might be a kind of acceptance and then it seems to circle right back again to really punitive measures against it. And some of those measures throughout history have included things like, so zoning is quite a common one throughout history. So we will accept that people want to sell and buy sex, but you can only do it over there. You can do it in that place. In uh, China and Japan, they had officially designated pleasure quarters that you would go to and visit. They also had that in Italy, in Renaissance Italy, a kind of a walled-in area. And that's what we now call legalised sex work because you can do it, but only within certain legal straits. Licensing, that's something that was big in the 19th century. So you'd apply for a licence and the state would regulate it, uh, which I guess made people feel that they were in control of it. But it's never actually a friend to the people selling sex. It's never their friend. The other more extreme ones are things like excommunication, really trying to banish anyone caught selling sex, mutilation. There have been laws passed in various countries at various points where uh, something called the whore's mark, which was uh, where they'd cut the nose off of somebody to like mark them out as being a sex worker. Being a male sex worker tended to come with much harsher punishments, because that, that's caught up with the narrative of homophobia, as you were saying earlier. So death, people being put to death. There was an attack on the gay brothels in ancient Rome, I forget the exact year, where basically the known brothels where, where men worked, they were just burnt to the ground and they were dragged out in the street and executed. So the, the punishments vary from, you know, arrest and stigma and banishment right through to, to murder and torture and, and mutilation. I mean, it's just so brutal. And what's conspicuous also is that all of that cruelty, that criminalization is directed at the sex worker themselves. It seems, at least from the examples that you've just shared with us, that there's pretty scant attention on the customer, on the client, and pretty minimal repercussions for the client. Is that still the case or what shifts have we seen in regulatory frameworks around sex work in recent decades? So it's interesting that you would mention criminalising the client because that's um, one model of regulating sex work that is very modern today and is in force in several countries. It's known as the Nordic model, which is where you make it illegal to buy sex, but it is perfectly legal to sell it. The theory behind this being that um, it, the, the most vulnerable the sex workers themselves uh, will have legal protection and they won't be persecuted by the law, but um, it, we can stamp it out eventually by stopping people, by, by finding the people buying sex and, and targeting them. And it's enforced in Ireland and in France and uh, a few other countries as well. And it doesn't work. In fact, in all of those countries, violence against sex workers has increased dramatically because 
it does that thing where it appeases middle class sensibilities and we can go, there we go, I did something, I fixed it. Ta-da, it's terrible to buy sex. I've done this thing, right? But it doesn't make people safe. In the same way that if I said to you right now, uh, your job is perfectly legal, you can keep doing your job, that's fine, but it's now illegal for anybody to pay you or buy anything from you ever again. Does that make you feel safe? Does that make you feel like, brilliant, thanks for that, got that, That's cheers, that's brilliant. No, it doesn't. So what that would do is it then forces you into a situation where you're now having to work in more risky situations with clients that know that they're working illegally and you now don't have any legal protection because you still need the money, right? So the good clients would say, well, Eliza, I'm really sorry, but it's now illegal to, to do that. I can't do that, but you still need the money. So if someone comes to you and says, well, I'll pay you, but I'm only going to pay you half and I want this, this and this. You're more likely to say yes, aren't you? So the, the, that particular model of criminalizing clients doesn't actually help. It doesn't help. But it is probably one of the first times in history that there's been targeted attention to the clients instead of the actual buyers. Yeah, I will say that. Many of these punishments that you describe really have this element of spectacle. You know, I mean, public hanging, obviously, and then this horrible marking that you described. And there are other examples in the book of female prostitutes having to wear certain clothes or certain colours, a hood, um, certain types of shoes. And I wondered about that kind of visual history or that, you know, that spectacle of sex work and thinking also about the visual arts. Are there particular examples of artists or artworks that you find particularly striking in their representation of sex work? I, I love that, that sex workers have left their, their mark everywhere, just kind of, you know, it's all around us, absolutely, even if we don't want to acknowledge it as such. But so the figure of the fallen woman, the sex worker, has always been super popular with artists. And that it's one set of historical documents that's available to us, but it kind of it always it's like you were saying at the beginning, is it's a very much a history of lost voices. And when you've got really famous artists, powerful artists visually depicting sex work, on one hand, brilliant, we've now got a view into that, but it's always filtered through the artist. It's always their fantasy, it's always their idea, it's always like we're never quite getting the voices themselves. But as I suppose that one particular narrative of sex work comes to dominate art or what we think, or what we see of it. So I was interested in what you're saying about it being a spectacle. And I think that that kind of goes back as well to the fact that sex workers throughout history, especially the ones that have attracted the most persecution are the ones that tend to be seen. They're the ones that are visible. They're the ones on the streets. They're the ones shouting out in the brothels that are on the streets that people see. Those are the ones that kind of attract the punishment and the scrutiny. And yeah, the control tends to be visible as well, i.e. you go over there into that area and only you're only visible over there. Or it's the, you know, in medieval Europe, they might have to wear a certain cloak or a certain colour hat or bells or something like that to try and mark them out as different as other. And a lot of it, you know, is tied up with this idea of we need to be able to identify them, identify them. So, quote unquote, good women won't be confused with these with these harlots. So it's all it is a very visual theatre and the punishments could be very visual as well, I suppose, as a warning to others, but also to be seen to be doing something. Right, that makes a lot of sense. So the visibility is not just about marking out the sex worker as other, it's also a very explicit display of a punitive system of power and control. 
I wanted to to shift forward a little at this juncture, Kate, and, and also talk about the contemporary experience of sex work, because obviously many countries have moved beyond that degree of cruelty and punishment and stigmatization. But there is still considerable stigma and there is a real deficit of sex worker rights and there is a very real and very present danger for millions of sex workers around the globe, particularly those that come from already marginalized communities or experiences and that then suffer this kind of double or triple, multiple othering, silencing, stigmatization. And stigma is still very much with us today. It absolutely is. And sex work will, by its nature, attract some of society's most vulnerable, some of society's most marginalised, because at its heart, as much as the moralizers and the pornographers, you know, try and pick out reasons as to why people do this. Are they nymphomaniacs? Are they mentally unwell? Are this? The, the bottom line is it makes a lot of money in a short space of time. Boom, that's it. That's the absolute sole motivating factor behind it. And if you are somebody who, for whatever reason, is pushed away from the mainstream of society, if you're a marginalised or stigmatised person who might, then sex work becomes an attractive option. And there's a very high percentage of trans women in sex work. And it will attract people that have high levels of um, disabilities, perhaps, because they can't work a nine to five or they don't want to. Uh, research shows that most sex workers are mothers, a lot of single mothers who just want time with their kids and sex work allows them to do that. So it absolutely attracts people that are the most marginalised. And then conversely, the people like to talk about it and pass laws are the most powerful. So it's very, it's really important that we finally start listening to sex workers and that's one of the good things that the the internet has done is it has allowed communities to form and for people to have their their voices heard with anonymity so you know there's lots of sex workers that you could follow on twitter for example um who do amazing work and they are allowed that level of anonymity as well because the stigma is such that it still plays out today people still lose their jobs people still get evicted people still face horrendous stigma if they disclose that they are a sex worker and that's in this country where selling and buying sex is legal and people still lose their jobs and people still experience horrendous discrimination. I'll give you an example of one. PayPal will shut down an account of anyone it thinks is selling sex, even though selling sex in Britain is legal and buying sex is legal. They just they just will not allow it and they'll shut it down immediately. Social media sites like Instagram, for example. Now, obviously, it's all right for them to say you can't use this to sell sex, but they will just close down the account of sex workers just for being sex workers. They're not posting anything that they shouldn't be posting. They just don't want them there. So the stigma is still absolutely with us. And this is something that we need to challenge and work on and work with because there are so many people in sex work who are not only vulnerable by the fact that they are selling sex, which is stigmatized already, but they're vulnerable for multiple other reasons that you've already identified. Maybe they're trans, maybe they're black, maybe they're disabled as well. So you've got all of these things coming together and that's why we've got to start listening and talking about this and criminalizing any aspect of it doesn't help those people. It doesn't help them, never has. And in terms of what has helped, what has brought sex worker rights and representation forward, looking back on, on the last century, say, or, or perhaps beyond that, what are the moments or movements that you'd identify as particularly important and impactful? Um, 
there, you know, there have been examples all throughout history of sex workers revolting, basically, and standing up for their rights and going on protest, but they seem to be quite isolated incidences and they're quite difficult to get at. But things like uh, the Stonewall Inn riots, they were led by sex workers. That gets quite hushed up, trans sex workers of colour at that. But what really shifted it, I think, well, at least what many sex workers around the world look at as the, the birth of a sex worker rights movement was the occupation of a church in Lyon in 1975 by sex workers in Lyon who had been subject to horrendous police brutality. And they stayed there, I think they were there for 10 days and the kind of the world's media flocked to interview them. And, and it was like, oh my God, sex workers have gone on strike. Oh God. So again, it was that kind of sensationalist thing. But... It was one of the first examples in history where sex workers really did have their voice and a political voice and a voice that was saying, "We, this is what we want. It's not about providing titillation or pornography or being condemned or all of that. It's that we want rights. We don't want to be uh, subject to police brutality. We want to speak to lawmakers. We want to be represented. And then as a result of that the sex worker rights movement started to catch fire all around the globe, like the English Collective of Prostitutes in Britain was established, uh, Coyote was established, I think that was Australia, New Zealand. And these kind of groups came up of sex workers being able to speak for themselves, which is something that's been so absent all throughout history. Speak for themselves, not have people speak for them or moralise or legislate or go, what I think they meant was, but actual people saying, this is what we want. And that, throughout the history of sex work, it's been there all along, like rumbling. But there's, people have been so disadvantaged and marginalised and disempowered that that voice has never really got through. And now it is. Now it is, thanks to amazing work done by really courageous and fantastic people. And I think as well that slowly, slowly, we're beginning to create space where we can have these conversations without clutching pearls and becoming horrendously embarrassed and the fact that sex workers are there to speak for themselves en masse is there's been such a shift in how we can understand talk or legislate around sex workers because for the first time ever is they're there to go sod off you know and that's that's so important so important and i hope that i've caught some of the voices in the book for sure you have, Kate. It's really such a human history of this experience that has been so dehumanised in so many ways for so long. So thank you for capturing those voices, for sharing those voices and sharing your voice with us today. It's really been a fascinating and illuminating conversation and a total pleasure to have you on the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. It's been lovely. You've been listening to the Thames and Hudson podcast. 